Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we explore population trends in northern Colorado with a look at new population estimates from the state demographer. Boulder is becoming older by virtue of just less children being born there. Plus, with the state launching a $5 million sweepstakes to persuade people to get a COVID vaccine, we examine the effectiveness of using money to incentivize health. All that and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. You may be familiar with the TV show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Well, Colorado has launched its own version, and all Coloradans who are vaccinated against COVID-19 are eligible to win. Using CARES Act money that would have gone to vaccine advertising, the state will give away $1 million weekly between June 4th and July 7th. But do vaccine incentives actually work? KUNC's Adam Reyes has more. More than half of all Coloradans have been fully vaccinated. So what do you get when you take a COVID vaccine? Much more minor cases of COVID, much lower level of hospitalization. Governor Jared Polis says that was enough for him to get vaccinated, but the overall pace of vaccinations in the state has slowed. So for the rest, the idea of giving away money is supposed to move the needle into their arms. You'll have a chance at winning $1 million, not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times over the next few weeks. And that's not the only way you can make money off of your vaccination. Some employers are also offering bonuses ranging from $25 to $500 if employees get inoculated. There's really two reasons why people get vaccines. Dr. Matthew Winia is director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. They're either getting the vaccine to protect themselves or they're getting the vaccine to protect others. He says some are not convinced by those personal or external benefits and may need the lure of money to feel their time, effort, and whatever side effects they might experience are worth it. That's what these incentives are intended to do, is to internalize an external benefit to turn this external benefit into something that benefits you. But Dr. Winia says money alone doesn't solve the access problems many may face, like living in a remote area or getting time off of work to get a shot. The pure financial incentives tend to work. Dr. Daniel Lee studies health incentives. He's an assistant professor in surgery at the University of Pennsylvania Health System. Other smaller programs, he says, like offering cash to get people to quit smoking, have shown success. But we haven't really seen these kinds of cash incentives used in a vaccination drive on this scale before. There's so much that we don't know in life, and especially in medical care and delivery, that having just a little bit of better sense of, hey, this works, this doesn't work, is really important. Other states began offering multi-million dollar vaccine sweepstakes before Colorado. Ohio was the first. According to their health department, they saw a 53% boost in vaccinations in the first week after Vaximillion was announced. People buy into it because we're all a little bit 
irrational in that way, right? We're willing to chip in for that chance at a really large reward. But even with the sweepstakes and employer bonuses, there is room for uncertainty and concern. How long they work tends to reach a, you know, a plateau of some form. Dr. Lee says people might eventually stop being convinced by cash offerings. Or the opposite, they might hold off on doing something unless they know they're going to make money for it. And for some, the money offer might backfire, increasing existing distrust of the vaccines. It's not a one, one solution for everybody, right? There's so many different varieties for why people don't want vaccines. And experts say incentives can't replace efforts to increase access, social pressure, or culturally and individually relevant education. So... Who are these money incentives really targeting? Dr. Winia answered that question. Typically, it's people who you know do not have strong objections to the vaccine. They just never got around to doing it. Bottom line, people who think vaccines do more harm than good probably won't be convinced by the money. Governor Polis recognized that on Tuesday, believing that group will be very small. We think that uh, most Coloradans want to do the right thing and get vaccinated. Our research shows there's probably only 10 or 15 percent that don't want to get vaccinated. The hope is the 35-ish percent of people between those who have already gotten a dose and those that definitely don't want to will be enticed by extra cash to roll up their sleeves. Adam Reyes, KUNC. The latest estimates of county-level population in Colorado show that each of the four counties that comprise the Northern Front Range grew between the summers of 2019 and 2020. And the numbers show that Weld County saw the second-highest population growth during that time. Here with more on the data and what it means is Dan Micah, who reported on the latest estimates for BizWest. Dan, thanks as always for being here. Glad to be here. So these four Front Range counties, Boulder, Larimer, Weld, and Broomfield, all grew during that time period, but let's start with Weld County. That population rose by more than 9,000. What are some of the key factors driving this growth? That has really been on trend for Weld County. They've been growing by a couple thousand every single year for the past couple of years. And I think that is primarily due just to the fact that it's relatively cheaper to buy a house there and to, to start a family there. Larimer County has a fair amount of space to open up if you're in, in Loveland or somewhere kind of outside of Fort Collins. Uh, but Broomfield is relatively small and in Boulder, simply because of the demand for very high earners to buy housing in there, it's it's kind of pricing a lot of people out of those, those markets in, in a way. And Weld County has room to sprawl out a little bit. I think the last medium home price in April that BizWest reported in the city of Boulder, especially the median home sale price in April was 1.5 million, just about. While Greeley uh, in May, median home sale price, that was about $365,000. Certainly not cheap if you're a young person trying to start a family, but housing is cheaper and you still have access to commuting down to Boulder or Fort Collins or Denver uh, that Well County kind of provides. I want to get back to housing, and I think it'll come up here in just a minute, but I want to pivot to talk about natural change, essentially the difference between the number of births and the number of deaths in a given population. In Weld County, the natural change is such that it's becoming a younger county. And you heard from the state demographer's office about this. Tell us what's going on with that. So during this period from 2019 to 2020, Weld County's natural change, just births minus deaths, that was relatively steady over the, the last couple of years. It was about 2,300 new babies. Boulder from 2018 to 2019 recorded a natural change increase of about 565, which mean that 565 
more children were born in the county versus people who died. That figure dropped to 353 over the 2019 to 2020 periods, which includes the first third of this pandemic. So Boulder is becoming older by virtue of just less children being born there. And that is of particular concern to the state demographer in a way, because that is creating the situation where a lot of people that may be moving into Boulder who have the ability to spend $1.5 million on a home and maybe you know, in their late 30s, early 40s, and have that kind of disposable income, those are not the same type of people who would be starting families. So that may create a situation where Boulder County is just going to become very difficult for, for someone to start a family if they're really middle class, simply because there is a much less expensive option right across the county border. Now's maybe a good time actually to pull back and talk about the data that we're talking about. These are sort of estimates on population, not official 2020 census numbers. Can you give us a little more context about these estimates and how how much can we actually rely on these? Right. So the, the state demographers said that because these are estimates, they're pulled through tax return data, Medicare enrollment, other federal data sources. These figures could be completely different from what the official 2020 census will say of how many people live in each county. However, uh, there's been plenty of reporting about uh, during the Trump administration, uh, changes to the census that changes how people may want to be counted. It is possible that the 2020 census numbers can be completely different than these estimates. However, these figures seem to be on par with what the state demographer has been predicting for the last several years, mainly that there's going to be a slowdown in growth in Boulder and Larimer counties, and that Weld County is going to grow very rapidly in terms of its population. There may be some noise that's thrown in due to the pandemic, uh, specifically Boulder and Larimer counties probably had a, a steep decline in uh, international migration because there were less students attending C Boulder and Colorado. State University, uh, less tech workers with H-1B visas coming in to do work from abroad. Uh, that definitely slowed down. But I think on the overall, the, the trends seem pretty solid. How much of this data do you think has been impacted by the pandemic? Was there a clear effect in just that short time? I, I think we'll need a little bit more time to really see see that. Um, probably you know, the, the next time that they release these estimates that cover, you know, the, sum, the the second half of 2020 to the first half of 2021 is when we'll really get a full sense of what exactly happened, not only in terms of maybe adding in the deaths, the death toll of the counties uh, during kind of the, the really dark period during the winter where uh, COVID was spreading very aggressively. But also those figures are probably more likely to determine you know, kind of the summer buying period and the late fall buying period where a lot of people were moving around. Um, a lot of people who had the disposable income to buy a house probably decided that between extremely low interest rates to try and keep credit flowing through the economy during the economic crisis that the pandemic produced, between just wanting more space to spread out while you're working from home, and between Colorado just being generally an attractive place to be if you are a remote worker or don't have to be in an office, I think we'll get a much better sense of what exactly the pandemic has done, uh, both in terms of the, the natural birth and death rate uh, of these counties, but also the in and out, in and out migrations. Dan Micah is a reporter with Biz West. You'll find a link to his story at our website, KUNC.org. Dan, thanks for bringing things down. 
Thank you so much. Colorado is looking for ways to lower the cost of health care. In the absence of broad federal legislation, state lawmakers are taking a multifaceted approach, including the creation of a board to review the affordability of prescription drug prices, which we heard about earlier this week. Now, Democrats are close to sending Governor Polis a bill to create a new health insurance option regulated by the state government. Colorado would become the second state after Washington trying to reduce premiums on the individual market by sparking competition. But lawmakers dropped plans for a public option. Instead, private companies will carry it. Senator Dominic Moreno says it will help fix a broken health care system. Maybe it means one less person declares bankruptcy because they got sick. But some Democrats who voted yes, including Joanne Janal of Fort Collins, are skeptical. Nothing in this bill explains how it will actually save money for the people who need this the most. The Senate passed the bill on Wednesday after several hours of debate. It heads back to the House to sort out the amendments. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Is it possible to know how your state representative will vote on a bill before it gets debated. What started off as a casual bet between two KUNC reporters has shed light on a little-known tool that can pretty accurately predict such outcomes. Our State House reporter Scott Franz and investigative reporter Michael DeOanna put power mapping to the test on five recent bills. So, Scott, as journalists, we're always gauging the support and opposition for issues. Michael, what are your methods for doing that? Good old gumshoe reporting, you know, asking people in the know and a bit of experience on reading which way the political winds might be blowing. But I also keep an open mind about things. Mine are similar, but I've also added a new kind of computer data analysis that can predict the fate of a bill. I'm pretty sure I can tell you who will vote for it and against it. And this is where our bet comes into play. Right. Before we get to who was right. Me or you. You mean me or your computer. (laughs) Let's go to where it all began. It was a hearing of the Senate Agriculture and Natural Resources Committee that you were covering on April 15th. At this time, we have a um, witness list of around 40 people. 40? 40. That's Carrie Donovan. She leads the four-member committee, and the bill is titled Ski Area Safety Plans and Accident Reporting. Senator Danielson, please. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, fellow members of the Ag Committee. Jesse Danielson is a committee member and a co-sponsor of the bill. Today, we're going to hear from a lot of families who have been impacted by injury or death on the ski slopes. The bill would require ski resorts to publish public data about all their injuries and fatalities, as well as create safety plans that consumers can review. And that's what got my attention. Before I started covering the Capitol, I was a print reporter in Steamboat Springs. I actually sat next to the police scanner, and quite often I could hear the paramedics talking as they treated injuries on the slopes. But it isn't easy to get detailed information or to learn about the trends. Exactly. Several reporters have tried this over the years. Including you. Back in 2019, I found more than 5,600 emergency room visits in a single year for ski and snowboard incidents. But I was only able to connect a few of the numbers to specific resorts. Those were the falls and other injuries involving chairlifts. And I had to file a Colorado Open Records Act request to get that slice of the information. You shouldn't have to be a journalist with a CORA request and a lot of money to figure out what's going on 
As a skier, I can say, if there's a simple, straightforward way to collect the data and require the ski resorts to produce safety plans that's public and transparent, we should do so. But there was a lot of pushback from the ski industry to Danielson's bill. For instance, Melanie Mills, uh, she's the president and CEO of the Trade Association, Colorado Ski Country USA. They represent 22 ski areas. Senate Bill 184 is a terrible solution to a non-existent problem. She argued that a national group representing the industry already tabulates injury and fatality numbers in a comprehensive way once a decade. But This is aggregated data, and it's not the granular resort-specific information that supporters are asking to be made public. The ski industry is interested in careful analysis of data and meaningful scientific conclusions that can be used to improve safety and help educate guests, not in soundbite pieces of raw data that can be taken out of context, used to sell a particular narrative, scare people, provide voyeuristic information, and tabloidize the topic of ski safety. I'm feeling like this is a really good point to let people know more about our wager. With people discussing their accidents, as well as some experts who testified about how data can make industries more accountable and safer, I thought the bill had a chance of getting out of the committee. But through power mapping, I predicted it would fail. In essence, it measures how likely lawmakers are to support or oppose a bill based on the money they get from groups lobbying on a particular issue. Organizations have been forever kind of looking at who are the players, uh, who are the decision makers. That's the lead designer of the power mapping tool. His name is Greg Schneider. Who is influencing them? Which ones are on our side? Which ones are not on our side? Which ones are potentially persuadable? The practice of power mapping is just kind of putting that in a visual representation. Schneider is the Innovation and Products Director at the Institute on Money and Politics in Helena, Montana. He says there are a couple of key ingredients to power mapping. Obviously, one of them is who is lobbying for or against a bill. And under state law, lobbyists must declare their position, or even if they are just monitoring a bill. And the other ingredient is to plug that information into the power mapping tool. It's worth noting that campaign contributions to Colorado lawmakers aren't that big. There are limits, $200 in the primary and $200 in the general election from a group. That's according to the Secretary of State's office, which oversees elections. Michael, it doesn't sound like a lot, but Schneider says even amounts in this range matter. It's an indicator for those of us looking at the political system that there is uh, some similarity in ideology somewhere between these organizations. And that reveals something at the Capitol people might otherwise miss, like how important the relationships between campaign givers and the lawmakers can be. So I asked you to walk me through this power mapping you did for the ski bill. We first have to sift through the long list of groups lobbying for and against it. Like the Colorado Association of Realtors, which is opposed. So we hopped onto Zoom and I read the groups to you. And I entered them into the system. Colorado Ski Country. Colorado Ski Country as opposed, yeah. Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce. They're opposed? Yep. Wow, they're a big two, 2.1 million. Oh man, this is going to knock everyone way over. And we keep going like that. Children's Hospital Colorado is four. Vail Resorts opposed. And finally, that's it. With all the information in, it brings us back to our bet. And to Senator Jesse Danielson, who after hours of debate, 
finally calls for a vote. Thank you, Madam Chair. I move Senate Bill 184 to the Committee of the Whole. That is a proper motion. Um, will you please take the roll? Wait, 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 wait. Stop the tape. I want to tell people what my prediction was first. You not only said uh, you could predict the outcome, but you also said you could predict who would vote for and against it. I said it would fail four to one, and Danielson would be the only one to vote for it. Senator Corum? No. Senator Fields? No. Senator Sonnenberg? No. Senator Danielson? Yes. You called it exactly, Scott. And there's this big takeaway. Groups opposing the bill had given $5.7 million to campaigns, while supporters came in at just 302000 So let's be clear, that's not money that went directly to fight or support the bill. And all of it did not go directly to the lawmakers voting on this bill. Remember the limits to giving that we mentioned earlier. Right. It's an overall amount, and it's a reflection of power in the form of money given to all lawmakers. But there's this question. Did campaign contributions influence votes on this specific bill? Absolutely not. Not in the slightest. That's two of the senators on the committee who voted no on the bill. Jerry Sonnenberg, an Eastern Plains Republican, and Democrat Kerry Donovan, whose district includes ski resorts. I don't think anyone can deny that the ski industry is a huge driver of our Colorado economy. The power mapping tool shows that Donovan received $1,000 in campaign contributions from ski interests over the years in running for office, including Vail Resorts and Colorado Ski Country USA, and another $400 from the Colorado Association of Realtors. But she told us the contributions didn't affect her vote or any of her other votes during the legislative session. I remember that Vail Resorts gave me a check because I was really proud to have the support of my hometown. But I don't know beyond that if I could tell you who I have and haven't received um, support of my campaign from. This makes me think about what Greg Schneider was saying earlier. He said donations have been given for a purpose. And as you said, Scott, the tool reminds us how important donations can be to lawmakers in a general sense. So the purpose, according to lawmakers we spoke to, is that organizations use money to say they support a candidate. Here's Jerry Sonnenberg. I think uh, when, when people are writing campaign checks, they write checks to people that may have a similar philosophy of theirs. Records show that Sonnenberg received $1,600 from Vail Resorts in Colorado Ski Country, USA, and another $4,100 from the Colorado Association of Realtors in his time running for office. So that they uh, would anticipate that if something came up, because you can imagine four years ago or whenever it was, when they were writing checks, they didn't know this bill was coming. And to that point, there's another interesting detail we found. Senator Jesse Danielson also received money from the Colorado Association of Realtors, $1,100. And they were opposing the ski safety bill that she was trying to get passed. So we asked her the same questions. Do campaign contributions influence her decisions on specific pieces of legislation? They wanted to fund my election campaign. And then on this measure, they opposed my bill. And that's not uncommon. And obviously, I 
I stood for my values. So a big looming question is in what light do we look at this power mapping? Because these senators are telling us campaign contributions don't predict what they will support. And that's exactly what Greg Schneider, the power mapping co-designer, expected would happen. I think most of them will bristle pretty heavily at the concept that money influences their decision making. Corporations donate, he says, because they believe they'll have some kind of sway in what becomes law and what doesn't. He also said that power mapping works best when it looks at the big picture. We put that to the test with other bills in the state legislature. Including one letting school boards and cities withhold information about the finalists they are considering for their top jobs. And one on big building efficiency. And two from 2019, the so-called red flag gun control bill and the fight over oil and gas local control. In all, we mapped five bills. And it correctly predicted the outcome of four of them. It didn't work on the oil and gas bill. There were many amendments to that bill, and it changed so significantly that it was difficult to track the support and opposition over time. Schneider told us that there are going to be cases where the power map doesn't predict what will happen. But he did reference a couple of studies that say, in general, this kind of tool is predictive, not only in Colorado, but in state houses across the country. And when it comes to lawmakers... I do think there is generally the ability to draw some correlation between the types of money that you give and the types of decisions that you make. So, Scott, the next time a bill I'm watching comes up, it might be worth taking a little time to power map it. I think so, and I'm willing to bet that it will predict the outcome. I'm Scott Franz at the State Capitol. And I'm Michael Deoana. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we hear the story of how a team of paleontologists from Denver came to find pieces of one of Colorado's most famous dinosaurs hidden away in some cardboard boxes. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Thank you.